Well, up to, up to now in these lectures, we've considered the first two in our ecumenical trio of virtues, faith and hope. And each one has been matched with an institution of the Lord's. Faith matched with holy baptism, hope matched with the Lord's prayer. And the content and act of Christian faith find expression and exercise in the rite of Trinitarian baptism ordained by the risen Christ. And the substance and the direction of hope are sketched and guided by the eschatological paternoster and other prayers of Jesus. Returning now to the 13th chapter in the first letter to the Corinthians, we find that now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three, but the greatest of these is charity. So we come finally to what we decide to call these days not charity, but love. And with love, I want to make a match with the Lord's Supper. Love and the Lord's Supper. You remember why I'm calling these an ecumenical trio of virtues. Firstly, because they are intended for each and every Christian to be received from God and exercised. They are intended for each and every Christian community. And what I've been trying to push ecumenically is that by working, studying together, and even practicing together in these three rites of baptism, the Lord's Prayer, and the Lord's Supper, we shall, we hope, be deepening the faith, hope, and love of our own churches. And it is in response to a summons from the World Council of Churches at Porto Alegre in uh, Brazil in uh, 2006 that I took up the challenge that the churches should use and employ their faith, hope, and love to move us together towards that unity which is meant for Christ's church. It is ironic that in the course of history, some of the debates and differences and discord have arisen in connection with these three very things, faith and baptism, even the Lord's Prayer and hope, and the Lord's Supper and love. But if we could only work together in study and in practice at these three, that we all have in some degree or another in our church communities, then the prospects would improve, I think, for the reunion of all Christians in the one church, the one body of Christ. So let's get to today's theme then, love and the Lord's Supper. According to the fourth gospel, we find, John 13, that when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world and go to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And at the Last Supper, as reported in the third gospel, we find Jesus saying to his disciples, I am among you 
as one who serves. You are those who have continued with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. Luke 22, verses 28 and 29. The three synoptic gospels and Paul all record how Jesus, on that final occasion, bequeathed what would become known as the Lord's Supper, or even by the Second Vatican Council as the Sacramentum Caritatis, the sacrament of love, the Lord's Supper as the sacrament of love. That's a phrase that is found already in St. Augustine and found in St. Thomas Aquinas and other great figures. This is the account then now of the Apostle Paul in the first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 11. I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also the cup after the supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Lord's Supper is the rite in which the love of the Lord Jesus is demonstrated and experienced, whereby the virtue of love may be inculcated among the immediate recipients and even extended beyond them and through them through their corresponding conduct. I cannot on this occasion trace the entire liturgical history of the Eucharist, but I would like to begin by recalling the service with which I grew up in the Methodist Church of Great Britain. The first order for the Lord's Supper, or the Holy Communion is what it was called, the first order for the Lord's Supper or the Holy Communion in our 1936 Book of Offices, followed quite closely the order for the administration of the Lord's Supper or Holy Communion in the 1662 Book of Common Prayer of the Church of England. Let me quote from our Methodist book several passages, and I ask you to notice the frequency and range of the love that there comes to expression. After the opening, Our Father, the first collect, the first short prayer, ran thus. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts be open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of thy Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love thee and worthily magnify thy holy name through Christ our Lord. That is one of the most beautiful prayers in the English language, in my estimation, and it does live on in many churches today. Then, in our book, the rubric follows, Then shall the minister rise, and turning to the people, rehearse distinctly the commandments of the Lord Jesus. And the people, still kneeling, shall, after every commandment, ask of God mercy for their transgression thereof for the time past, and grace to keep the same, for time to come, as follows. 
our Lord Jesus Christ said, The first commandment is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind and with all thy strength. People respond, Lord, have mercy on us and incline our hearts to keep this law. Then the minister, the second commandment is this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other greater than these. Lord, have mercy upon us and incline our hearts to keep this law. A new commandment I give you, that ye love one another, even as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. Lord, have mercy upon us and write these thy laws in our hearts, we beseech thee. And then after the scripture reading, the epistle and the gospel, comes the prayer for the whole estate of Christ's church militant here on earth. And we are reminded that we are to make prayers and supplications and to give thanks for all men and pray God to inspire continually the universal church with the spirit of truth, unity and concord, asking God to grant that all they who do confess thy holy name may agree in the truth of thy godly word and live in unity and godly love. Then the minister talks to intending communicants who are supposed to be in perfect charity with all men if they are properly to receive Christ's instituted and ordained pledges of his love. Ye therefore that do truly and earnestly repent of your sins and are in love and charity with your neighbors, draw near with faith. And so it goes on through the service. There's hardly an item in the service, hardly a paragraph, hardly a sentence that does not contain love as a verb or a noun. Now, after all that wordage, let's look also at some gestures and some dispositions of space that embody the divine and human love enacted in the Sacramentum Caritatis drawing a little more widely now on liturgical history and practice. A first gesture may go back to St. Paul when he urged the Roman Christians to greet one another with a holy kiss. Romans 16, verse 15. I'm thinking, however, rather of the exchange of the peace that has spread rapidly among many Protestant churches by way of the influential liturgy of the Church of South India, which had been created from the Union in 1947 of the fruits of missionary labors, especially on the part of British Anglicans, Methodists, Presbyterians, and Congregationalists. The form of the gesture combined used one, um, it was a combined one that Orthodox Christians used in India, orthodox with a big O, sort of mixed with the ordinary Indian gesture of greeting. It's a gesture with the hand. And it wasn't that gesture that became immediately adopted by all Christians in the home countries. We found alternatives. But my mother used to say, that she came to church to worship God, not to shake hands with Mrs. So-and-so. 
That was her opinion of the peace. And she would certainly not have welcomed the developments of the peace into the hugging and kissing now present in so many Methodist services. Other perhaps less controversial gestures favored by the liturgical movement included the presentation of foodstuffs and other items at the offertory, which were then distributed to the needy after the service. Or again, the use of a single loaf and a single cup for the Holy Communion, with the delivery of the consecrated remains for the prolongation of the sacramental service among housebound members of the congregation. Those are also gestures in a sacrament of love. If, as I did for the match between faith and baptism, and between hope and the Abba Father prayer, if I were to look into the letter to the Romans for a match between love and the Lord's Supper, I could turn to the 15th chapter, where the apostle rounds on the disputatious characters from chapter 14. And he says this to them, May the God of steadfastness and encouragement, those were two of the nouns in the early chapter, chapter 5 of Romans that I highlighted as being connected with faith, hope, and love. May the God of steadfastness and encouragement, qualities and gifts associated with the Holy Spirit, grant you to be of one mind among yourselves, that you may with one heart or one will and one mouth or one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 15, verses 5 and 6. And then if after all that, Paul charged the Romans to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And then prayed that the God of hope will fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Then it will scarcely be stretching matters to say that according to the apostle, not only unity in faith and unity in hope, but unity in love belong to the proper participation in the high prayers of the Eucharist and in the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper, sealed perhaps with a holy kiss. And such indeed he hammers home to the fractious Corinthians in his first letter to the church in Corinth, especially chapters 1, 10, and 11. In Christian history, as I was hinting, the Lord's Supper, ironically, has often been the scene where disputes and divisions have arisen or been maintained. These disturbances have concerned both matters of doctrine and matters of discipline. In connection with the Lord's Supper itself, the doctrinal matters have mainly touched on the nature and mode of Christ's presence at the Supper and the relation between the Eucharistic action and the unique sacrifice of Christ. The disciplinary matters have had to do with authority to preside at the Lord's table and with competence to receive the sacramental bread and wine in communion. Such issues of doctrine and discipline have also been labeled by that term, which I think you should by now be familiar with, as questions of faith and order. And the chief forum for attempting the ecumenical settlement of their problems in our time has been the Faith and Order Commission of the World Council of Churches. That remarkable convergence text 
baptism, Eucharist, and ministry, which was unanimously adopted by the Plenary Commission of Faith and Order at Lima, Peru in January 1982 as mature for transmission to the churches with a request for evaluation, including this, the extent to which your church can recognize in this text the faith of the church through the ages, the consequences your church can draw from this text for its relations and dialogues with other churches, particularly with those churches which also recognize the text as an expression of the apostolic faith, the guidance your church can take from this text for its worship, educational, ethical, and spiritual life and witness. Quickly nicknamed BEM, B-E-M, the text attracted an unprecedented amount of attention among ecumenically engaged denominations and their membership. I think I mentioned to you, I'd, for 10 or 12 years after that text was issued, I was called on time and time again to go and address churches at all levels, in synods, in local meetings, and so on. And the people were really interested in that text on baptism, Eucharist, and ministry. Why? Because for once, a theological text was dealing with something that they came across every Sunday. Baptism, Eucharist, and ministry. With regard to the Eucharist, it's generally agreed that there must be at least a reasonable measure of agreement as to what is taking place around the Lord's table before ecclesial communion can be shared and finally restored among hitherto divided communities claiming to be church. It is therefore gratifying that the most concise paragraph of the Eucharist section on the meaning of the Eucharist found a practically unanimous welcome. Let me read that short paragraph to you. The Eucharist is essentially the sacrament of the gift which God makes to us in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. Every Christian receives salvation through communion in the body of Christ and the blood. In the Eucharistic meal, in the eating and drinking of the bread and wine, Christ grants communion with himself. God himself acts, giving life to the body of Christ and renewing each member. In accordance with Christ's promise, each baptized member of the body of Christ receives in the Eucharist the assurance of the forgiveness of sins and the pledge of eternal life. That paragraph found practically unanimous approval in the responses of the churches. And then similarly, the, the respondents were delighted by one sentence in paragraph 13. The church confesses Christ's real, living, and active presence in the Eucharist. The church confesses Christ's real, living, and active presence in the Eucharist. But already an original commentary on that paragraph had signaled a warning that the churches differed as to how definite was the link between the presence of Christ and the signs of bread and wine. And to the question, the whether this difference can be accommodated within the convergence formulated in the text itself, 
the replies coming sometimes from opposite directions came in negatively. The churches still could not agree as to the relation between the signs of bread and wine and the body and blood of Christ. As to the relation between the Eucharistic action and Christ's unique sacrifice, paragraph 5 exploited the rediscovered biblical notion of anamnesis or memorial. The Eucharist is the memorial of the crucified and risen Christ, that is the living and effective sign of his sacrifice accomplished once and for all on the cross and still operative on behalf of all mankind. The biblical idea of memorial as applied to the Eucharist refers to this present efficacy of God's work when it is celebrated by God's people in a liturgy. And on into paragraph 8, the Eucharist is the sacrament of the unique sacrifice of Christ who ever lives to make intercession for us. In the memorial of the Eucharist, the church offers its intercession in communion with Christ, our great high priest. So attempts are made there on those two questions of the mode of Christ's presence and the sense of sacrifice connected with the Eucharist. And it had to be admitted that those did not meet with complete agreement from the responding churches. As to a matter of discipline, a matter of order, presidency at the Lord's table, this is what paragraph 29 declares. In the celebration of the Eucharist, Christ gathers, teaches, and nourishes the church. It is Christ who invites to the meal and who presides at it. He is the shepherd who leads the people of God, the prophet who announces the word of God, the priest who celebrates the mystery of God. In most churches, this presidency is signified by an ordained minister. Now, as to churches which lack a supposedly uninterrupted succession of apostolic ministry, the idea was floated in paragraph 38 of the ministry part of the document that they might come to appreciate and then presumably receive, I quote, the episcopal succession as a sign, though not a guarantee, of the continuity and unity of the church. But the replies from the various churches revealed that the idea of a sign, though not a guarantee, was too much for some and too little for others. Reverting directly to the Lima text on the Eucharist itself, we note that the final chapter on the celebration of the Eucharist, paragraphs 27 through 33, makes several proposals to help bring Eucharistic communion closer to its proper role in church communion. Let me read, somewhat abbreviatedly, some of those proposals. The best way, paragraph 28, the best way towards unity in Eucharistic celebration and communion is the renewal of the Eucharist itself in the different churches in regard to teaching and liturgy. The churches should test their liturgies in the light of the Eucharistic agreement now in process of attainment. The liturgical reform movement has brought the churches closer together in the manner of celebrating the Lord's Supper. However, a certain liturgical diversity compatible with our common Eucharistic faith is recognized as a healthy and enriching fact. 
Paragraph 30. Christian faith is deepened by the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Hence, the Eucharist should be celebrated frequently. Many differences of theology, liturgy, and practice are connected with a varying frequency with which the Holy Communion is celebrated. 31. As the Eucharist celebrates the resurrection of Christ, it is appropriate that it should take place at least every Sunday. As it is the new sacramental meal of the people of God, every Christian should be encouraged to receive communion frequently. And then finally, 33, the increased mutual understanding expressed in the present statement may allow some churches to attain a greater measure of Eucharistic communion among themselves and so bring closer the day when Christ's divided people will be visibly reunited around the Lord's table. And with that, we come to our last current question concerning the Lord's Supper as the sacrament of love. It's a question that has occupied ecumenists since the very start of the modern ecumenical movement, namely that of Eucharistic sharing. At what stage along the way to the restoration of union, unity among divided churches, at what stage does it become proper to share communion across confessional or denominational lines? And the question has usually revolved around the term intercommunion. For much of the 20th century, intercommunion was in fact the slogan around which the ecumenical debate turned regarding the point at which churches might properly enter into Eucharistic fellowship with one another. The Orthodox, big O, rejected altogether the notion of intercommunion, name and thing, on the ground that there is either communion in the one church or no communion at all. A similar substantive position was held by the Roman Catholic Church, some Anglicans, some Lutherans, and some Baptists, although these all differed on what was required for the unity of which Eucharistic communion was or would be the sacramental expression. On the other hand, those churches which accepted a federal model of unity used the word intercommunion without any pejorative intent or sense of provisionality to describe the sacramental sharing across persisting denominational boundaries. Between those two positions, no intercommunion at all, or a carefully nuanced one, stood those ecumenists who had most at stake in the notion of intercommunion. At some point along the road to an ever fuller unity, they argued, it becomes appropriate, both possible and desirable, for churches to practice intercommunion as both a sign of the measure of unity they already enjoy and a means towards a more perfect unity. Sometimes they adopted an eschatological perspective, for the Lord's Supper prefigures the banquet of the final kingdom, where a divided fellowship is unthinkable. And they argue that the goal of unity could become proleptically effective through the active anticipation of it in the sacrament. And at the time of the Faith and Order Conference at Lund in Sweden in 1952, Professor Thomas Torrance of Edinburgh spoke of the Eucharist as the divinely given sacrament of unity, the medicine 
for our divisions, the medicine for our divisions. Now, as to liturgical practice, especially at meetings in the multilateral versions of the ecumenical movement, in the heyday of the World Council of Churches, the practice became established from 1963 onwards of including on the official program of big ecumenical conferences both a Eucharist according to the liturgy of a church which cannot conscientiously offer an invitation to members of all other churches to partake of the sacrament, and one in which a church or group of churches can invite members of other churches to participate. This dual practice witnessed to disagreements among the churches about whether Eucharistic communion was a means on the road or rather the goal of the journey. That dual pattern of having a relatively open and a relative closed communion in big meetings of the World Council of Churches was abandoned at the Eighth Assembly in Harare, Zimbabwe in 1998 at the insistence of the Orthodox. There was to be no Eucharist in the general program of the meeting, but rather what was called a vigil of confession and repentance for our brokenness, of penitence for the inability to eat together at the Lord's table. As one last move, though, may we narrow our question to that of what is sometimes called Eucharistic hospitality, a practice addressing the case of individuals in stressful circumstances. We may take our First example from the stricter side, the Roman Catholic. The Second Vatican Council offered hospitality in exceptional circumstances to Orthodox Christians in the sacraments of penance, Eucharist, and the anointing of the sick. And Protestants have been included in the provisions made in the ecumenical directories of the Catholic Church of 1967 and 1993 and endorsed by Pope John Paul II on several occasions, for rightly disposed non-Catholics to receive upon correct request the Catholic Eucharist in the emergency circumstances of mortal danger, persecution, imprisonment, or serious spiritual need. A condition is that the sacramental faith of such seekers should be consonant with the Catholic Church, and that pastoral opening may have hitherto unexplored implications for the way in which the Catholic Church might view the sacramental and ecclesiastical reality of Protestant bodies. For where else would such communicants have come to their faith except in their own communities? In the other direction, Catholics are forbidden to receive communion by their own discipline in those communities which lack a valid sacrament of order. Undoubtedly, the Pope's warning against premature mutuality of Eucharistic communion or any acquiescence in inadequate forms of unity is both authoritative for Catholics and salutary for the broader ecumenical movement. Nevertheless, Pope John Paul II may have been forgetting an important statement made by an early predecessor of his in the 13th century, 
Pope Innocent III, who said that the Eucharist both signifies and effects ecclesial unity. Both signifies and effects. There must be some measure of unity already there to be signified, but that measure of unity can be increased, affected, moved forward by the Eucharist. Therefore, the question really still remains. How far do we have to be advanced in the unity which the celebration of the Eucharist signifies before we can draw on the sacramental grace to effect the fullness of that unity? Ecumenically, communion has become in recent years perhaps the favorite ecclesiological category or model. In conjunction with the Second Vatican Council's relaunching of communion ecclesiology, the extraordinary synod of Catholic bishops in 1985 called communion the central and fundamental idea of the council's documents. Let me, as one, I keep coming to last notes and they keep more coming. I'm sorry about that, but here is one that I think is, let's say, is the near last note. Let me cite the very first paragraph of a recent British Methodist guide to the Lord's Supper, a little book entitled Share This Feast, Reflecting on Holy Communion, 2003. Interestingly enough, the Archbishop of Canterbury wrote a commendatory word for the back of that booklet. Share this feast reflecting on Holy Communion. And this is what that pastoral booklet for helping British Methodists understand says. Celebrating Holy Communion is always about participating in community. We gather together with other Christians in the name of a God whose very nature is loving community, the Trinity. Communion is not something we can celebrate alone, and though it always takes place in an actual human community, it isn't a feast that we create. It is something that God offers and invites us to. We take our place alongside other people we know, whom we love and maybe struggle with, and in company with all faithful disciples, present and past, we celebrate across the world and before the face of God in heaven. We share as the body of Christ the community of his followers. And let me quote to you, this really is, I think, just about the last one. No, there'll be another last one after this. The discipline of admission to communion in the British Methodist Church, which is a very subtle and, to my mind, very uh, respectful statement. It shows respect for the varied communion disciplines of other churches in quite a subtle way. This is what it says. One of the keynotes of the Methodist revival was John Wesley's emphasis on the duty of constant communion. That's a sermon of his. And it is still the duty and privilege of members of the Methodist Church to share in this sacrament. The Methodist Conference has encouraged local churches to admit baptized children to communion. Those who are communicants, and this is the subtle bit, those who are communicants and belong to other churches whose discipline so permits are also welcome as communicants in the Methodist Church. 
Those who are communicant members in other churches and whose discipline allows it can receive communion in, are welcome to receive communion in the Methodist Church. That is, I think, showing respect for the Catholics and the Orthodox because their communion does not allow them to receive communion with us and we recognize that that is the case. One last time I can open up the final horizon with the communion that we expect to enjoy in the end. It will be Trinitarian in personal structure and cosmic in scope. That at any rate is the conclusion of John Wesley's sermon, The New Creation. Just one sentence. And to crown all, there will be a deep and intimate and uninterrupted union with God, a constant communion with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ, through the Spirit, a continual enjoyment of the three-one God and of all creatures in him. After hearing that final, and I think very moving and broad word from John Wesley, let's see what his brother did with the hymn, Christ from whom all blessings flow. And I invite us to join in the singing of that Charles Wesley hymn, Christ from whom all blessings flow, perfecting the saints below, hear us who thy nature share, who thy mystic body are.